Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. This week, I'm joined by Cassie Young, and we're going to talk about all things special educational needs. Hi, Cassie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's very early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so we we look at our guests in numbers just to get a feel for who they are and response with numbers, obviously. My first question is years as a teacher. I actually had to sit down and think about this. <laughs> Tell it's holidays. Eight years as a teacher. Years as a head teacher? Nearly six, so five and a half. I almost made it to six, but uh, I started in a, in a weird term and finished in a weird term, so five and a half. First year group taught? Year three. Last year group taught? Um, a four five mix. Most important year group? Reception. Favourite year group? I feel, I feel like I need to explain that, but I'll explain after maybe. <laughs> Favourite year group, year two? Tweets. Is that how many tweets I've done? It is, yeah. Oh, that's embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> 25,000. Is that, a, that's a lot. It, it, it is a lot, um, but it's maybe 120,000 less than the um, than the record for a guest response. <laughs> so you're still- I'm okay, you're still... I feel so much better now. <laughs> I feel like that's that's nearly 12 years of tweets, though. But I won't say that I didn't use Twitter for the first probably five years. Of <laughs> but yeah, that's a lot. Solid. That's, yeah, I think you're, you're really proactive on on Twitter and having conversations with people. You know, so I think yeah, that's absolutely fair. Enough. Thank you for making me feel better about that. <laughs> Um, but the most important year group is reception. I just think you've got to get it right there. And I think that's why it's the most important year group. I was made a phase leader of, of reception in Key Stage 1, and I had actually only ever taught in Key Stage 2. And um, I felt like I really had to prove myself because the teachers in there were like, you've never worked in reception. How on earth can you be the phase leader? And it was... Um, I had a lot to prove. So I spent a lot of time in reception and key stage one before I, I went into to work in, in um, year two. And uh, they're just, it's just, it's just incredible. It's an incredible place. And I think receptions teachers definitely don't get enough kudos for what they do. And I've just seen the impact that they can have. You know, you've got children that back in the day on the old, um, development matters you know you had children coming in at 22 to 36 months and these children left kind of working and flourishing above above their own um age when they they got to year six and I think it all started in reception so I think it is probably the most important year group I don't know if that's surprising or not really I think whenever I first wrote that question I was expecting lots of year sixes as an answer but like I say it's, it's very popular for people to say reception is the is the most important year group so yeah, so I think it sort of shows how I switched on you know the, the people I just happened to have asked to <laughs> come in for interviews are you know because then yeah I'm 100% with you on that there you know if you do it right early you save yourself a whole lot of time and in intervention later on don't you yeah yeah definitely definitely and it's so this they're just so on it and they and they make huge amounts of progress and you think some children come in and you think how on earth are they you know ready for school my own daughter you know she was she was two weeks into being four when she started and, and I cried as I passed she didn't look back 
skipped <laughs> on the day that I thought that she would be devastated. She didn't even look back. She just skipped into school. We were like, oh, she's going to be fine. But I wasn't fine. And then, um, you know, the progress she made was huge. And I, they just work incredibly hard and they, they're constantly changing the environment and thinking about, you know, not only the, you know, they're talking about all of the areas of learning, their physical development, as well as kind of academic achievement and and making sure that they're all engaged and and they've all got things to do all of the time and it's um it's exhausting I've seen you know I have worked in reception you know I've covered people and and spent a lot of time in in a reception class and also nursery as well I would say it's the most important year group I was going to say that my favorite year group is year two (laughs) I love year two I don't know why I think it's because they're kind of at that age where they can start to you know that you can hold conversations with them and they're really curious about everything and you can get them really whipped up and, and excited about and interested in pretty much anything but they're also another year group that just make loads of progress and you can have a real impact with them and they're still they've still got that kind of silly giggly kind of you know I remember taking a, a class on a a school trip when I worked in London and we went on the underground and I had 30 children basically in the doorway of the tube and I just looked down at them and it was like the little aliens in Toy Story they're all just like jiggling around on this tube and I was thinking I feel very very responsible right now but they just just lovely and they just it's just a lovely age to work with. Nice yeah my my youngest is summer born so he's mayor so he's he's in reception he's he's not gonna be five until until next May and uh, yeah, yeah the, the progress he's made since going to school is, is phenomenal you know considering he spent most of his, of his nursery in in lockdown so yeah yeah see where you're coming from yeah no it's um it's exciting it's exciting when they come back and they you know they've got their phonic sounds and they're you know starting their you know name writing and and they're verbalizing things that they've they've been doing at school and you think yes this is it you can tell that they're getting you know a decent deal here um because they they want to come in and talk about it it's when you start saying what have you done today can't remember nothing <laughs> you just think oh here we go <laughs> so you're, you're a teacher head teacher and are about to take on a new role with a focus on special educational needs across the multi-academy trust tell us about your journey and how you got here I always wanted to be a teacher and I have absolutely no idea where that came from which is quite interesting I didn't have like an inspirational teacher that I thought yeah that's what I want to do I just kind of always knew that I wanted to go into teaching I um, didn't go into teaching straight away I felt that um, I needed to have, have a bit of a bit of life experience and try different things out before I committed to it completely um but it was something that I always knew I wanted to do so that I didn't feel that there was this massive rush to go into it so I I went traveling when I was 20 for a year and then I worked in a nightclub for about 20 years actually on and off through university and and through work and had always worked from the age of about 14 I've always had a job and stuff and um And then I moved to London. I I did my degree in Brighton. I did um, a philosophy and history degree. I didn't do um, a teaching degree. I did go and look actually at doing a teaching degree and I got accepted. And then I went um, and did like a taster session 
um, for this philosophy and history degree. And I just absolutely loved the the kind of discussions that were happening and the thought processes and the reflect, you know, the opportunities for reflection. And I thought, actually, I really want to do something that interests me and I'm passionate about. And I don't want to go into a teaching degree and get sort of three years in because I think it was a four year degree at that point. And I just thought, actually, I don't want to lose the passion for it before I've even started. I have got a tendency to kind of switch off things and get bored really easily and kind of lose interest quite quickly. So I was quite aware, even at that age, that I was uh, that, that was a possibility. So I thought, actually, let's just do this, this degree. And I absolutely loved it. So I did that. And then I moved to London and, and did my PGC in Kingston. And then I, I stayed in London um, for about 12 years uh, I just loved London I loved the busyness and and the pace of it and I loved working in inner city school so I worked in South London then I moved back to Hastings when I had my daughter so we moved back and before I'd left the Senko at my previous school was um, going to retire and she said look I think that you'd be really good at this and I hadn't even considered being a Senko at that point and um I was really shocked that she'd asked me actually um because she was just this amazing woman she was had the patience of a saint and you know we were all quite young teachers and we just thought oh she's coming with some more paperwork for us to fill in oh she's gonna make us do this another intervention and she's gonna make us you know sit and have all these meetings and and we used to try and avoid it which is awful we used to try and avoid her and um, she used to just follow us around <laughs> come and sit here and do this and and she just was this incredible woman she used to do every intervention across the school and her timetable must have been absolutely jam-packed and um she I used to watch her with some of our, our most vulnerable children and she would just calm them down with her voice and she would work so incredibly hard and these children would just transform and I just thought if I ever had kind of an ounce of that I'd be an incredibly lucky person and yeah she approached and she said you know you're going on maternity leave have you considered doing the Senko qualification while you're off <laughs> like, like it was like I was about to have a year off you know <laughs> and uh she she said you know I think you'd be really good at this and I just I thought okay yeah let's let's do that let's let's have a look at it so um while I was on maternity leave I went to Roehampton and did my national Senko qualification and um that was great it was um part of a Merton hub so we would work at Perseid special school um so we'd do work experience there and we'd kind of learn the ropes um, and look at the practice that was going on at special schools. Um, and then we would go to Roehampton as well. I got my qualification and then a job, the job uh, came up at Brinsit, which was a two day a week Senko position. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's great. That's, you know, I can learn about the job and it's part time so I can still be at home. Uh, and then I started there and then that very quickly became a three day week job and then an assistant head role. So I was a class teacher, a Senko, a DSL and, um, and part time. And then within about six months, um, the leadership changed 
and they asked me to take on the head of school role so I was doing it full time full four days a week and that was quite um that was quite a challenge because the school was in special measures and I had a lot of plates to spin at that point and I was also four days a week but really working five in the classic you're part-time but you're full-time really um and I had um Rita was must must have been 18 months old so my daughter was only tiny as well um and looking back I think how on earth (laughs) earth did I do that Uh, but I did yeah that's that's how I ended up in that role it was purely kind of by accident (laughs) and kind of yeah let's give it a go actually um and it's one of the most fulfilling I'd say Senko is one of the most fulfilling roles that you could possibly do because you have the privilege of working with some extraordinary children that show you kind of what positive behaviors and determination and courage and and that's children from all ages from reception up to year six at the moment and and it feels like an absolute honor to work with some of these children and the progress that they make and the determination they show is incredible I think we I think I've probably learned more from children than I have from adults (laughs) at different points in my career yeah it's amazing it's an amazing job yeah, my overriding sort of thought here is how on earth did you do half that stuff with the, you know, either while on maternity leave or with very young children, you know, that's amazing, <laughs> hands down. Um, I think that I ended up just being incredibly organised and I'm and actually through, through the beginning of my teaching career I was not particularly organized everything's last minute and everything was a bit kind of haphazard but I got kind of got through it and then I think I sat down and thought I you know if I am actually going to do these roles and the danger is that you take on especially in small schools you take on so many different roles um, and then you end up not doing any of them particularly well and I was absolutely determined that that was not going to happen because particularly when you're a DSL um, on top of everything else you can't you can't allow that to happen um, because that's when you know you get into to kind of dangerous territory of, of missing things or, or things falling through the net or, or you know you know that bit of paperwork that needed to go off is is vitally important and it hasn't been done or you know when you're doing annual reviews or putting together kind of EHCP assessments or you know anything like that if you miss things or you put them to the bottom of the pile you know you could be six months on on a waiting list later than than you originally were and that's no good for anyone I just lived and and died by my diary (laughs) making sure that everything's in and I think one thing that and it's such a small thing that I do but if I have a meeting I will write it up and send it immediately (laughs) or if I've said I'm going to send you that I'll write it in my diary, send it immediately while I'm either still in the phone call or having the conversation or I won't leave until I've done it. And um, just really small little things like that and actually blocking my diary out. So for for completing paperwork, um, because paperwork is the bulk of it, unfortunately. 
so actually putting my diary you know I'm blocking out that morning because I'm going to be doing that piece um or I'm going to be having that meeting and just blocking out a whole morning giving myself enough time but yeah it was just a lot of juggling and also saying when um things were too much um I had an amazing executive head teacher who I could just call probably just cry at and say I can't (laughs) things need to stop for a minute I need to catch you know I need to catch up and um having an incredible team around me who would pick up the slack or they would take things off me I think I learned a lot about myself as a leader we're all quite controlling in education we all like to do things ourselves because it's quicker and it's done the way you want it to be done and even as a classroom teacher, you know, you'd get, you know, someone would come to cover your class and you think, oh, don't, I'd rather you didn't, I'd rather just do it myself. <laughs> and um, I've learned that actually you can't, you can't do everything. And actually you do need to give up a bit of control sometimes. And you do need to delegate because, because the workloads are huge and you can't do everything yourself. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned um, life experience at the start, because it's, I often wish that I'd had a job that in an office and before I became a teacher because I went straight from university into the classroom and it was the mistakes I was making were the mistakes you probably learn if you've had an office-based job you know like write things down during meetings because you won't remember everything and stuff. <laughs> yeah so I think it makes total sense in terms of you know you learn to be organized by yeah I worked um I worked for Orange Mobiles so I um so I worked in a nightclub and then I worked so so I got to learn to deal with difficult people. <laughs> Drunk adults are very similar to children. <laughs> so you know, and working with some real difficult characters and you know having to negotiate and kind of and and work while really you know absolutely exhausted. I mean, I used to work crazy like seven in the evening till four o'clock in the morning and then start again you know I'd work in a bar during the day and then work in the nightclub in the evening and it you know you end up in this crazy sort of working this fuzz so when I started working in schools I was like actually this (laughs) this is all right I'm working and it's daytime like this is shocker um but also worked for Orange um so worked in kind of business sector and when I moved up to London, I, I moved from a Hastings store up to Oxford Street. And that was a complete change of pace. And it was all about making money and getting commission. And it wasn't like that in Hastings. It was very much like, if you sell a phone, great. In London, it was like, if you don't sell a phone, you are going to be hauled over hot coals. And, and that kind of pressure and accountability suddenly went through the roof. And I loved working in London. I loved working in Oxford Street. Um, and I met people from all walks of life and just loved it absolutely loved it but I did you're right I did learn an awful lot about working with adults (laughs) and working with kind of yeah that pressure and accountability and being able to justify your decisions and you know and even though it's such it was a simple job I mean here do you want a phone you probably need one it's quite an easy sell but you would also deal with complaints and people just you know people get really funny about buying things don't they so um yeah I think I I learned a lot from that as well so I think the focus of this uh, episode is going to be special educational needs I think it makes sense to define what we mean in terms of the parameters of this particular chat so what what do we mean when we say special educational needs going forward I think we are talking about 
children with educational needs above or different from their peers that we're talking about mainstream classrooms because that's the the the, the sector that I work in is is mainstream school so I think when we're talking about special educational needs it's it's different to um or additional different from or additional to excellent I think that yeah whenever we were preparing for this the distinction was that we're not necessarily going into the realm of profound and complex needs you know that a that a special school might experience so I think that's really useful largely because it can be quite an understandably emotive topic and um yeah in in the interest of approaching this as sort of sensibly as possible I think yeah we, we know the remit in which we're discussing I think it makes sense yeah and I think that we do have children that have profound and complex needs in in mainstream schools and I think more and more schools are becoming adept and seeing more complex needs coming into schools and having to learn more than they ever have before about you know supporting these children it's become a quite a, a and I and I think that you know what we were talking about earlier saying that actually sometimes these conversations are difficult um it's because there is a lack of kind of understanding about some of the needs that are coming into mainstream schools um and people get very concerned that they're not meeting these children's needs quickly enough or they're leaving it too late and the issues kind of become amplified so I think yeah when we're discussing today it's more kind of general special educational needs and that doesn't mean general is a one-size-fits-all because everyone's experience of of special educational needs and pupils with different and additional needs are unique to that child and that's the difficulty in some ways that you can't generalize because everyone has their own experience I mean, it probably seems really obvious, but why is the highest standard of special educational needs education essential at our fears? I think you have to get it right as early as possible. And if you've got high standards for our, our most vulnerable learners, and when I say vulnerable learners, and I've said this when, I, when I've done talks at um, kind of conferences, we're talking about vulnerable learners not necessarily children that are lower retaining children they are vulnerable to missed learning opportunities because we know that we've got children in our class that might have a special educational need um, but they are working way above kind of their peers it doesn't necessarily mean because a child's got a special educational need that they they are a lower attaining or have particular you know that they might have difficulties with communication but they are working alongside or above their peers in the classroom so they're vulnerable to kind of missed learning opportunities and I think if you raise your kind of expectations and your standards on on all children then all children are going to benefit from that so you do have to get it right and you do have to have you know there has to be that essential kind of expectation and you have to get it right in terms of early intervention and, and getting it right from the start so that they're not playing catch up or you're not losing children in the system 
of waiting lists or waiting until they're in key stage two and then thinking, oh, yeah, this child's had difficulties from reception, but actually they're kind of bobbling along. So, you know, but actually I don't think they're going to cope very well at secondary school. So let's start getting things in place now. It's not that it's too late to do that, but if you are aware of a child that is struggling um, and needs kind of scaffolding and support or some kind of other agency involvement, then do it as early as you've noticed it. That's why I think, you know, and I'll harp on about reception, but things like phonics interventions, no, not phonics interventions, phonics, <laughs> being taught phonics is a really good indicator and a really good marker to kind of work out if early intervention is, you know, if there's intervention that's needed. Because when you're teaching phonics, you're using all of those kind of, you know, they're using their voice. They need to use, you know, speaking and listening. They need to use um, their fine motor skills. They need to recall and retrieve things. And it's daily. So it's a really good way to kind of look at children and think, okay, you're really struggling. You know, there might be a working memory issue here. Or when you're picking up pens and pencils, we're looking at hand grip, but you're really, really struggling with that. Or um, your pronunciation, you know, is a bit off and you're not being able to form certain sounds. Um, you know, is there a tongue tie there? you're struggling to see the board and it's all those basic things like can they hear like they might need a hearing check or they might need to go to opticians or they might need to go back to the doctor and look at tongue placement you know and all of those things um, can be picked up really early and if they're not picked up you know we've had some children that have come to us and they're tongue-tied and they're at the end of key stage one and you think this child has had difficulties from reception and it hasn't been picked up then they've kind of struggled to communicate then that's kind of turned into a frustration that's turned into a behavioral issue and then you end up dealing with the behavior issue and not the actual problem that it has manifested itself into that and so it's always kind of taking a step back and thinking okay we've ticked all these boxes to check that all of these things that are fixable can be fixed. And now we can look at the child again and see if there are, you know, has that kind of supported that child into making progress? Are they now going to carry on with their educational journey and not have these issues? Or is there another underlying issue that we now need to pursue? So I think that's why it's, it's so important. Thinking about my career and thinking about the specific pupils, I'm not doxing any of them on the, on the podcast, but yeah. If you get to key stage two and it has sort of manifested as a behavioral issue because of sort of really pent up frustration, yeah, it, it just makes so much sense, you know, deal with it just like you would with any situation and you avoid sort of a lot of upset, don't you? Yeah, and I think there's a danger that people think, well, of course I've thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> I The amount of senkos that get frustrated when someone says, have you thought about using a visual timetable? You think, yeah, of course I've thought about that. But actually, <laughs> things like hearing and sight and all of those basic things that you need to function well at that age, you know, children can't say, well, I can't hear properly. No, that they might 
be aware of it, but they might not be something that they verbalize and they don't know that they can't see the board. Yeah. <laughs> so actually just by getting them, whether they're that they might be absolutely fine, but just in case we had a child years ago that we were saying well, there's some there's, there's there is an issue there there is a real issue there and we can't work out what it is we always just had a kind of standard kind of checklist at that point like let's just check these things off and they took her to the the doctor and and they said she is her ears are completely blocked completely and within the space of about a month they had to medicate her and they had to kind of do a couple of procedures and that child was completely transformed in the space of six weeks and I thought we could have been here for years <laughs> saying that she's got this issue and this issue and this issue actually it's something quite simple and um that child was completely transformed within six weeks you think that wasn't any that wasn't a special educational need that was a medical need that could have completely gone undetected really so yeah I think that's why reception teachers are just phenomenal because they pick things up really quickly like that um and and we've been really lucky but I know that you know it feels silly and that's you know you feel silly saying have you thought about <laughs> um but I don't think there are any silly questions really no it's, it's better to feel silly than to feel remorse or regret but further <laughs> down the line you know that the fact that you didn't say something I think some of the biggest mistakes I've ever made I it's not acting i should have done something or should have you know should have said something um, and you know would have avoided a headache down the down the line so i, I totally get that yeah and if, if you had to condense your approach to special educational needs into a set of guiding principles what would they be i think you just need to become a really bloody good teacher <laughs> you need to become a really good teacher because if you know your children and you sort your behavior out in your classrooms and you hone your skills at teaching you then become more aware of those children that might have those those additional needs in your class because you will kind of be able to get through the you know I've spoken about this before and said that if if the behavior is not is not sorted in a classroom you potentially could say oh every child's got some sort of need in here and actually you might have a child with a sensory need that just can't cope with the noise levels and they might need to leave the classroom or you get the child that's totally withdrawn because everything is a bit overwhelming in there and if you don't get things right as a teacher so that quality first teaching needs to be absolutely a priority I think there is some kind of merit in observing specialists that come into your school and work with your children and I think that's really difficult in schools particularly I'm going to keep talking about small schools but I think any school because even in in the, the bigger school that I worked in it was still an issue that you'd have specialists coming in and working with children but you would be teaching in the class so you wouldn't get those opportunities to see the specialists working with your children um, but you might get, you know, a support staff member going in and, and observing. But as long as someone from that class is observing how the specialists are working with them, I think there are some missed opportunities there. And I think that's really important. And I think leaders in schools and, and SENCOs need to 
kind of make that happen. So if you've got speech and language therapists coming in and working with your children, or you've got occupational therapists, or you've got play therapists or anything like that, possibly not play therapists because it's quite a confidential environment, but even just talking to them about the, the processes that they use and the strategies that they use could be really, really useful. I think using the time that you've got, I think it also it comes from leadership. I think this, because I because I've been the head and the senko, I kind of see it from both sides. And a teacher, you kind of see that leaders need to look at workload. They need to really look at workload and planning and marking and all of that stuff and kind of remove as much of that as possible so that your teachers in the classrooms have got the time to concentrate on those children, those, you know, those children that are that have specific need or they have personalized plans or they have kind of quite tight interventions so that the teachers can really see the impact and progress that's being made there's a real danger that you stick a child into an into into an intervention and you don't have the time to see if it's actually having an impact and some children can sit in interventions for 12 weeks <laughs> And it has absolutely no impact on that child. But because you're doing something, you feel kind of okay. Well, I know that they're okay because they're sitting in an intervention. Well, that intervention is having absolutely no impact. You're wasting your time. You're wasting their time. You're, you know, you're using manpower to kind of put that in place. Actually, you'd be better off doing something else. So I think the guiding principles are freeing your time up and using it more directly to to kind of look at what's being ha what's happening in the classroom you're you're singing from my hymn sheet here you know because <laughs> we, we make so many decisions every day if we're having to think about stuff that other people have thought about for us you know for instance like you said like planning say there was a really well planned and sequenced curriculum you know that frees you up to think about other things like you say you know all the, to make sure all pupils are attaining well in subjects to make sure all pupils are sort of supported as best we can you know without that i think you spend your your time thinking about superficial features of the of, of the of classroom practice i think you know so you know i'm totally with you on on freeing up teacher time i think that, that, that possibly might be one of the best things i've heard on this podcast <laughs> thank you very much but i i can i totally I see the difficulties from all sides like as a head we put in a new curriculum I personally hate topic <laughs> so I just and particularly for our pupils with SEND I hate topic because I I fundamentally believe that all children have something they have a golden thread running through them that they're good at something the danger with topic is that you get all this mishmash, and I'm going to talk about topic in the worst possible sense because I've seen some amazing. I'm going to the disclaimer is I've seen some amazing topics. <laughs> I've seen some amazing topic work, but I've seen some really, really, really bad topic work, which is a mishmash. It's a bit of history and a bit of geography and a bit of art, and then there's music playing over the top of of the classroom while children are scribbling down on whiteboards and having a chat and probably giving each other the worst history lesson in the world and it becomes this big mishmash and 
that child that's sitting there that is really really struggles with reading and writing and maths but is incredibly creative is sitting there thinking I'm totally overwhelmed by this whole kind of hodgepodge of stuff and actually by separating those subjects out that child has got the opportunity to flourish and to to be celebrated and to have this kind of positive experience in school and that's why I'll always fight the good fight for kind of discreet lessons <laughs> and and that was one of the things that really transformed our school we implemented a knowledge rich curriculum and and I have a music specialist I had a music oh, talking in the past tense I had a music specialist in my school and he started giving out uh, brass lessons some of our children that struggled the most with fine and gross motor started having brass lessons we had a, a child with dyspraxia who we just thought would never that wouldn't be anything that they'd be interested in and he went to every brass lesson going and it was that moment where you thought if we hadn't put that opportunity out there we would never know and the same with art you know we 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 did a lot of um kind of art artist studies um and children studied you know pieces of of art and they recreated their own pieces of art and they learned an awful lot and we had one child who pretty much through the whole of key stage one was um selective mutes and just was an incredible artist and she created these pieces of work that actually brought us to tears sometimes because she'd come into my office and say I've done this and she'd open up and talk about it and I just thought wow actually just by and you know it was an, an incredible amount of work to, to create this curriculum and, and my team worked incredibly hard to make sure that it kind of represented kind of the community that we lived in but also gave these children a cultural capital outside of their own experience and we knew that that was really important for us because we're remote and rural and and, and getting children out and about to, to have these experiences was more difficult so we started bringing it into school and these children you know and it wasn't every child of course not but there were these kind of key moments over the last sort of three or four years where these children were just show us what they could do and it was incredible and I think that is part I think I think that's part of the reason that that um I don't like topic <laughs> I think that's, that's really really powerful in your opinion what's the single most important thing for teachers to consider when supporting pupils with more complex needs don't assume that children can't do things because they have additional or different needs and continually raise the bar of what you're expecting because when you raise the bar on children they'll do everything they can to to exceed it show you that you're wrong and actually <laughs> and I think yeah and don't differentiate I think um differentiation can completely stifle and put a ceiling on kind of your expectations and just because a child struggles in one particular subject doesn't mean that they're going to to struggle in every subject that is a real issue 
where there's this sort of underlying assumption, well, they're not very good at, at, at writing, therefore their maths isn't going to be very good. I'm like, how did you come to that conclusion? And why are you giving this child work that they're completing really quickly and then not challenging them to move on? Um, I think that there is some power in this kind of starting every child, you know, starting your teaching with everyone together and then scaffolding and supporting those children that then kind of get to that point where they think, you know, you've assessed them as, you know, that's the point they've got to where they now need scaffolding and support. And that's where you then put it in. I'd say just don't assume that children can't do things. Yeah, a mutual colleague of ours has actually asked his leadership team to stop using the word differentiation. You know, it, it is scaffold and challenge is how they articulate because um, obviously in maths, I brought in, you know, this is how, this is our approach to maths. We have high expectations of everybody. And actually he sort of rolled that out across the, the general teaching and learning approach. Um, and it, it makes a lot of sense because the differentiation that I was told about in 2004 <laughs> is a whole lot different to what it might mean now. And, you know, you, you know, I think there are shades of healthiness in terms of the different de definitions. And certainly the one where you have to make six different activities for six different groups, starting at P levels and, and level five, is certainly, you know, that, that's it, it's not helpful. I think, I think it's really easy to become quite sneery about things that had happened previously and say, oh, it's ridiculous. Like, absolutely ridiculous that we have to do this you know I could waffle on about APP files that I used to have to lug around and highlight and date you have to date it three times and highlight it off to show that this child had done you know even though you knew full well they could use full stops and capital letters why am I having to then go through their book and evidence it and date it and you know that it seems insane now at the time at the time I was like yeah this is you know this is this is me proving that I'm having an impact and therefore and that's what my that's what my leadership team want they want me to prove that I'm a good teacher and that's what I'm going to have to do and it's the same with differentiation I, you know we had a planning grid with six yeah six boxes and I think there was a box that said SEN and then lower ability and it was like oh god and that, you look back and you, I cringe now and I think oh my god like and I was writing children's names in these boxes and and then because the workload was so huge you just basically photocopy that page and those children would never move from those boxes and then you'd get to the end and and you do um a kind of assessment paper at the end you know particularly in year two where they were just assessed continuously every six weeks you just shove an assessment paper in them and uh, and you think I haven't even taught that <laughs> the workload is so, so huge and the curriculum is massive and um I haven't even taught that so why am I even giving them an assessment paper where I know they're absolutely going to bomb it no one is going to move from these boxes and you just then handed that class up and these children never move from these imaginary boxes <laughs> and um but then you kind of you know fast forward these children got their GCSEs <laughs> they got their A-levels they you know so what what were we doing and but at the time that's kind of what the landscape looked like that's what you know I think it, learning styles has a lot to answer for and kind of you know children wearing weird hats in different coloured hats and you know and and we would group these children 
we did some really odd things but we've learned an awful lot since then and we will continue to do that and I'm sure that we'll probably listen to this in five years and think what the hell were we talking about then as well it's happening you know we're shifting so quickly um, and everyone kind of their mindsets need to to shift as quickly and I can hand on heart say we've we've not always got it right but I think the intention to support children has always been there you know we want all children to succeed we want all children to do really well so I think it it always came from a good place but it was just a bit misguided back then yeah like you said probably misguided now too and (laughs) (laughs) you know but I'm sneering about how things used to be is the whole premise of this this podcast You know, I lost my heart of teaching, so I I, I feel a, <laughs> a deep resentment. <laughs> to all those I'm clinging on to mine. I'm clinging on. <laughs> yeah. So, in in reference to the principles you outlined earlier, what might these look like in practice in a school that's doing a particularly good job of supporting their pupils with special educational needs? When you walk into a school that's inclusive, you there's a there's a certain positivity that you feel. And I know that's probably going to upset people because when <laughs> when Ofsted visit schools and they're looking for outstanding, they can just feel it apparently. But I do think that there is a certain there is a certain feel of, of a school where everyone has a voice. And I always question if I walk into a school and there is a child sitting outside of the classroom in the corridor, I will always question that. And that probably annoys people. Um, and there's probably a perfectly legitimate reason but I think if a child's sitting outside in a corridor at a table and they're working and they're they're probably with an adult I think why can't that child be in that classroom and that is always a good indicator to me as to what kind of school that is because if they've got perfectly legit you know oh well the rest of the you know this child was off school for a day and they need to catch up and they're doing an assessment paper and they need it to be quiet and everyone else is doing you know they're doing a music lesson or something other perfect makes perfect sense i think that when i started working at my previous school the inclusive nature wasn't there and we had children from all year groups with special educational needs working in a room with a TA and the reason for that is because the behaviour in the rest of the school was was on its knees and that decision was made with good intention that actually those children then get the opportunity to work in a room that's quiet and that they can get on with their work and they can be supported by an adult and that was a real wake-up call to me that actually if you don't get the culture right in your school you are on the road to a really unhappy place a really unhappy school the children aren't happy the the staff aren't happy and you kind of lose your vision and your purpose and I think all teachers and support staff and anyone working in schools and they work in schools because they want to see the best for children and that has to come from the leadership's vision and and that has to be communicated to everyone I think in schools that are inclusive, yeah, I think everyone has a voice and everyone, there isn't that kind of reluctance to put your hand up and and ask a question or to answer a question. And no one feels silly, um, even if it's the wrong answer. Um, And everyone has a go. 
and there's a supportiveness and that can come from understanding different children's needs within the classroom so we've had some circumstances where the parents have said we want other children to know that this child you know our our child has this need um, and we want that to be communicated so that everyone kind of understands that that's why they do certain things or that's how that's why they react to certain things so really really good schools will work really closely with their parents and that specific child and everyone in that school will know okay this child really struggles when we do this so that's why they need support or scaffolding or you know that's why we work in a certain way with that child and there's this kind of mutual respect and compassion and empathy that is built on that kind of on those kind of circumstances so I think that's what you would see. And I think that's why it's so important. No mean feed either. You know, I mean, that takes a lot of, like you say, organisation. It comes right down from the very top and it, it filters down into permeates everything that's happening in school, isn't it? It takes a really long time. And actually, you have to constantly justify why you're doing it. And it's only once you get there that people say, I get it now. I understand why we spent so long working on that or why you constantly repeat <laughs> your expectations over and over again and why you're fighting that fight and why you're, you know, trying to get resources or people into the building to support these children or why you are, you know, part of our appraisal system is that you will kind of work, you know, you've got you know children you might have children with dyslexia in your class room and part of your appraisal you know through discussion and agreement that you're going to find out about how to support those children or you've got children with speech language and communication difficulties and we're going to put professional development in place to upskill you so that you can be an advocate and a champion for those those children and the next class that comes up, you are undoubtedly going to have another, an, you know, another child with another specific need. And you want your teachers and your support staff invested in learning and developing themselves so that they can become advocates and champions for those children. Because then that culture, it, it becomes a catalyst for that culture and that inclusive culture that you that you build. And it's a it's a wonderful thing when when you get there and you're never quite there <laughs> because you don't know who's walking through the door next and what kind of adjustments you're going to need to make. But because everyone is on the same page, it creates this kind of nurturing, holistic kind of environment. It's absolutely integral for for academic progress because those children feel that they can take those risks and that they can make mistakes and their peers, you know, together are going to support them. It, it, there's, there's been a, a couple of times where I've walked into a classroom and a, a child's given the wrong answer and <laughs> their, their classmate next to them has patted them on the back, it's all right. <laughs> and I just think, that's it, that's it. Like, if we can distill that, those moments, or, you know, a child's got up and they've read something out and they've struggled a bit and they're, 
their classmates help them, you know, with a bit of reading, or they're given this kind of spontaneous little clap at the end of something that a child's done and, and that they know that that child's worked really incredibly hard to do. And those moments are the ones where you think, yeah, we've got this culture right. And are there any pitfalls that schools should try to avoid? I think going back to that, the feeling that you're not doing enough. Teachers have got that terrible guilt. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but I, always say, like, I should be doing more. I should be doing more. Um, and I know teachers and support staff feel that, that, um, you know, are we doing enough? Are we doing the right thing? And I think that if you feel like that, if you feel like, am I doing the right thing? Then ask, ask, am, are we doing the right thing for this child? Are we seeing an impact of what we're doing? And if we're not, what are we going to do to change it? Not just go with the flow, <laughs> not just go, well, this is what I've been told to do. So this is what I'm going to do. If you don't feel like it's the right thing, then say something. And also, if you've got concerns about a child that hasn't been brought up by the parents or by the Senko or, you know, speak and, and say something. Would you say that on a head teacher level as well? So, for instance, if you don't think that the necessary bodies are making the interventions that they need to, would you, would you ask them to speak up as well? Yeah, I think head, I think head teachers have a really difficult job. <laughs> Not just saying that because I've been one, but you need to reflect on on what your offer is. And you've got things like mainstream core standards, which is kind of the, the universal offer that you should be kind of giving to children in a mainstream classroom before you kind of go down a specialist route. But if that isn't working, um, I think there is a difficulty. There is a kind of expectation that you wait and you wait and you wait. Sometimes... You've got, you've got to get to a point where you think, I'm not waiting any longer. I'm going to kind of get what this child needs. And I think I've been guilty of kind of thinking, well, you know, we'll give them a bit more time. We'll give them a bit more time. We'll give them a bit more time. And, and time goes incredibly quickly, particularly in schools. And actually just flag, flag it up as soon as you start thinking, okay, this isn't having an impact and we're putting all this support in place and it's still not having an impact. And I think we need kind of some specialist advice. Just do it. And head teachers can get bogged down with everything else that they have to do. Um, and I think, I think that's why if I could go back, I think separating the Senko and the, and the leadership role would have been kind of better for me because I end up finding myself in this conflict like internal conflict of saying okay we've got to think about the needs of the whole school and then we've got to think about the needs of these individuals and you know that's quite a combative environment for one person to have um, so I think finding someone else to kind of challenge you and question you and your decisions is incredibly important yeah, that must have been quite a quite an internal battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a bit. <laughs> yeah, some of, some of the best head teachers in Sankos I've worked have been really tenacious in their pursuit of making sure all the pupils get the best deal they can. And you know, I think they have the that healthy respect where they can challenge each other and and sort of push things forward because everybody, like you say, everybody has different ideas, different opinions, and it's about what's best for the children day to day, isn't it? Yeah, I've surrounded myself <laughs> with people that 
always challenged me and that's exhausting sometimes but I think um I quite like that I think I'm not I'm, I'm never happier than when I'm discussing education and kind of policy and strategy and you know and people are sort of even just the question why did you make that decision and I think oh and it, it, it raises my anxiety and then I think this is what I need like I need people need that when you're making decisions that ultimately affect other people's lives you must be challenged and you must reflect on on kind of decision making luckily you know and actually through twitter i've met some people um and i have a, a good group of, of of professionals around me that will challenge me not you know pr pretty much on everything <laughs> not just education they will challenge you on everything but i really admire and appreciate that and i am i'm never happier than i than having an argument about education <laughs> and um and discussing the landscape and and the research and the ideas and you know and and you know like we were talking about earlier you know it's really easy to look back and sneer at things that that decisions that we made but i think if I don't think at that point there was the environment, there was enough people challenging. I think we were working in silos and now we've kind of opened up this environment that allows people to go to conferences and challenge each other and allows people to probe research and ask, you know, how many people were actually asked when when this research was created and actually is it representative of what we're working in? And, you know, you do have social media to kind of you know it's quite nuanced isn't it but you know you do have those opportunities to then you know say actually can we open up this discussion can we actually have a discussion more widely than than 140 characters or whatever it is and um i think that's a great place to be yeah i'm totally with you i think yeah it definitely feels different from you know from the world that when i first heard about research ed and the world we're in now feels very different feels you know i know we're a very small sort of bubble or the five percent of teachers who are on twitter but you know i think the conversations are extending beyond you know certainly in the schools that i visit people are having the conversations that might have been had maybe three or four years ago i come into contact with a lot of people that aren't on twitter which is thank goodness uh, <laughs> but they're having the same conversations Tw yeah twitter is a very small group of of professionals but i think using it as um, a springboard to open those conversations up and to question people outside of that um it kind of gives you a bit more confidence to say okay so i've read this research paper i've read this blog uh, you know we're looking at this book we've been listening to these podcasts we've attended these conferences we're getting a, a much wider picture of of kind of issues and ideas and i think that that's got to be better than, than than what was before and i think it's important tell me about your new role you know what's the aim of it what will it look like day to day and what are your ambitions as you embark on this exciting new journey it is really exciting so the official title is inclusion executive officer which sounds really big and scary. Does it sound impressive? <laughs> it's um it's a new role. 
so I'm not taking over from anyone and it's a newly established role and actually the reason that I took it was because I just think that if you've got a trust that have created a role an executive role for inclusion that's the kind of trust that I want to work for because I don't think many trusts have that role um, overseeing inclusion across 10 schools so 10 primary mainstream schools they're spread across Kent and it's um, a newly established trust so it's um, a, a it was a trust of four schools um, and they've taken on six schools from a different academy and then they've come together as a, a group of 10 schools so it was only officially brought together at the beginning of this year so it is actually a new trust and the CEO is very visionary and he is wholly committed to inclusion. That includes kind of pupils with SEND, different communities. It's looking at kind of attendance. It's looking at inclusive practice. It's looking at CPD. So it's it's a whole host of different things. And I think my first kind of job is to go and get to know the schools get to know what they look like get to know what they feel like the head teachers are an amazing bunch of people they're already kind of committed to inclusion which is great and I think that we can do some really good work ideally I think I'd you know I think we would like the trust to be known for its inclusive practice um, and and kind of that sharing of good practice across those 10 schools and I've also been given a kind of another job which I haven't really told anyone about so here you go um, it's a system lead of education and I didn't <laughs> realize at the time that it was going to be a national lead of education so it's inclusion lead of education and it's going to be working to support the peer-to-peer -peer reviews that Kent are currently doing so Kent have started working with Nason and Elsie and they're going to be doing peer-to-peer -peer reviews across Kent in hubs so I've taken on that role as well which is great I didn't realize how huge the role was until I got it and then they said oh it's a it's the same as an NLE and I was like oh wow okay <laughs> um so that's going to be really good so it means that I can go and see um and support other schools outside of the trust and then I can bring kind of that practice into the trust and also share kind of what we're doing with other schools so it'll be really exciting a really exciting role um so yeah I think I'm going to be busy nice and so can any of us who are based in Kent expect to see you in our schools over the next <laughs> six seven months <laughs> are you signed up to do the peer-to-peer -peer reviews probably yeah I imagine I imagine they probably are you know my, my head's quite proactive in that way so yeah I think there's a few of us and I've been put with schools across the marsh so it's schools that I'm familiar with because um before I got that role I didn't realize that um I'd be getting the role at all I didn't make any assumptions about it and uh, I set up a group of schools so we've got a, a couple of schools that are in my trust and then we've got um, a couple of schools in Folkestone a secondary school a pupil referral unit and I thought it'd be really good to get those schools together so that they could see how different sectors and phases worked 
so from you know we've got a school with a nursery all the way to kind of sixth form including a pru and so that we can spend time in each other's schools and having a look at kind of what does inclusive practice look like here and how can we improve that and what is the reality of a pru and how you know what happens if things fail at secondary school or what happens if you know we don't get the right provision in primary um, and it's looking at the journey of some of our children and our most vulnerable children and actually what can we do at each phase to make it better so that was really exciting I set all of that up and then they said oh you've got this job um so we're gonna you're gonna be working with schools in Dover <laughs> I was like I'd really like to work with these schools and they're like okay well we'll move you around um so I can carry on working with those schools so I think it'll be a really worthwhile piece of work it's been wonderful talking with you about special education leads today I think hopefully the first of a few chats you know but it'd be particularly interesting to see in 12 months time how your role has developed and whether or not it matched up with your your ambitions is there anything before we finish that you think teachers should read listen to or any final advice you know for those who are feeling energized and ready to improve their their practice i think the research ed book on scn on special educational needs not because i've written a chapter of it but i think it's a really good starting point it's not a particularly long book it's broken down into specific areas it gives advice on kind of one page profiles and personalised plans and kind of experiences for SENCOs. And I think that's a really good kind of starting place if you have a, a, a vested interest in that. Um, the work of Gareth Morwood, um, David Bartram, Mark Rowland, um, the EEF have done some amazing research projects that they started across Kent, actually, and I think that they've rolled out to other places, or maybe it rolled out to other places and then came to Kent, but they were doing kind of work around special educational needs and research projects that you can do in your schools, and also characteristics of deprivation, because that kind of goes hand in hand with kind of vocabulary, kind of interventions that you can put in whole school that have a huge impact. There's also just making use of your specialists in your areas and and sharing the good practice and networking with them and I would also say don't be intimidated by kind of asking questions and I've probably said this repeatedly but just ask the questions and challenge those kind of decisions and look at your interventions and what's going on and and kind of read up yourself as well but you've got incredible people working around you all the time that you probably don't even know about. And, and they are there and willing to answer any questions that you've got. And they are actively excited when you say, how can I help this child? You know, they genuinely, and I know for a fact, they genuinely like, yes, <laughs> someone is asking about how to support those children and that, you know, and that's what they're there for. You're surrounded, I guarantee you're surrounded by people that want to help. It's really important to know that small changes can make a big difference. So even just those small little things that you can do in your class to support all of your children will make a huge difference. So find some decent blogs, find some decent ideas. Twitter is a good, you know, even if you don't want to kind of participate in Twitter, actually just using a couple of hashtags, you can find some really good articles and blogs and papers. So 
just continue to be an advocate and a champion for your pupils. Nice. I've heard lots of good things about your chapter in the, in the Research Aid book about special educational needs. And I, I think I've read three of the series and they've all been really high quality. So I've no doubt that it's definitely worth checking out, you know, even if you're going to be modest about, you know, your your contribution to it, you know, because I, I heard your talk at um, at Research Aid Surrey was fantastic. You know, three people uh, on separate occasions have told me how, how much they enjoyed that talk. So, you know, I think if, if, that, if that's anything to go by, you know, then that chapter should be essential reading if anyone's interested in this. Uh, Thank theme. you. That's that's good to hear. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, but I know you, you've obviously got to shoot off to, to get boosted. So all set to this. Thank you very much for your for your time today. It's been fascinating and look forward to talking to you about in the future. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been great. Thank you.